0: welcome to the extra environmentalist
1: your opposable thumb means nothing this is what we want to be we don't want to be americans or germans or english we want to be extra environmentalists always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger the outsider The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Oh man, that was a really long backpacking trip. I'm ready to sit down by this fire here. Man, I'm getting
2: tired. Yeah, after hiking all day, I am so tired and I'm so excited just to hang out by this campfire. Although it is starting to get a little creepy out here. Yeah, it's really, really dark outside. Um, I can see the stars really well. I I, I thought I heard something back there. Did you hear anything? I don't know if it's just my mind playing tricks on me because it's close to Halloween, but I definitely hear something. It sounds like footsteps. Oh. What, what is... Oh here's a light. There's a light coming. Who is that? Hello? Well, it looks big and round like a jack-o'-lantern. L- Hello?
1: Hello? It's Alex Jones here, and I'm hunting the Illuminati out here in the forest tonight, and I, I would have found him if it wasn't for you meddling kids.
0: Uh, Alex Jones? It, we're in the middle of the woods. What
1: are you doing out here? Well, I was out bushwhacking for the New World Order today, and I saw some footsteps, and I ended up following them, and it turns out it's you guys, and it's not actually the New World Order, or the Bilderbergs, or the Rothschilds or or anybody, but uh, I had a good time. I, it was a beautiful hike. Lots no, of nice waterfalls.
0: Oh, you really scared us. We thought that there was some kind of ghost or something out there. You know, it is Halloween after all.
1: Oh, there are definitely ghosts out there. I just don't look for them. I just look for the hidden clues to the new world order in basically everything.
0: Oh. Well, well, you're here, so you might as well sit down.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll be glad to hang out with you guys and roast some marshmallows. I even have some canned food for my stockpile on me.
2: Oh, wow, thanks, Alex. That's a really good brand of beans to roast on the campfire.
1: Well, since I put my feet up out here, who are you guys talking to on today's podcast? Well,
2: Alex, we're talking with David McNally for our Halloween special this year. And we're going to be talking to David about the history of capitalism and the monsters it has created, the vampire, the Frankenstein's monster, the zombie, and how some of these monster stories might be expressing the unconscious feelings that we have in a capitalist system.
0: That's right, Justin. And Alex, I bet you're really going to enjoy this show because I know how you feel about monsters. Since you're here sitting next to our campfire, do you want to take us out and get people ready for the
2: episode?
1: You got it, Seth. This is the Extra Environmentalist Halloween episode for the year 2012. Get ready for some scary stuff. We'll see you on the other side. Hey, Alex, pass those s'mores. All right, Seth and Justin, let me tell you about this one time I burst in on a Bilderberg meeting and they shot me in the face of the
2: David McNally, thanks for joining us from Toronto in Canada to talk about your book, Monsters of the Market. And since we're headed into Halloween, we wanted to talk to you about monsters and uh, monsters of the capitalist system and monster movies have become wildly popular since the 2008 financial crisis. There's vampires and zombies everywhere nowadays in popular movies and books, Pride and Prejudice and zombies sold a stunning number of copies and so we wanted to ask you, is there a connection between this popularity of zombies and vampires and the global financial crisis?
3: I think there is. And it's interesting that in 2009, in fact, just in the early stages of this crisis, Time magazine pronounced that the zombie was the official monster of the recession. And I don't think that's an accident because several things happened in a a very profound financial collapse of the sort that we had in 2008-9 when global banks were melting down and, of course, the world economy was massively destabilized and one of them is that all of a sudden the dominant financial institutions world banks and multinational corporations and so on look like crazed monsters they are doing every bit of destruction they can in order to remain profitable foreclosing on people's homes, laying people off from their jobs in a whole variety of industries, and so on. So that really fuels the vampire imagery that we've seen proliferating throughout the crisis. But the other side of it, of course, is that it says to the vast majority of us that we are simply replaceable, interchangeable units in this colossal machinery of profit making that our identity our personal histories our life experiences are irrelevant all we are is mindless beasts of burden ie zombies zombie laborers and so i think that a moment in economic life like this really gives a huge resonance to arguably the two enduring monsters throughout the history of capitalism, uh, the zombie and the vampire.
0: I have Left 4 Dead, video game Xbox where you go around with machine guns, heavy artillery, shotguns, blowing the heads, the legs, the arms off of zombies.
3: Why is this so fun? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's fun for a lot of reasons, and of course, one of them is simply the idea that you're striking back at monstrous creatures who rule our lives in some way, or make at least make our lives terrifying in, in some way. So it's a, it's a great sort of symbolic uh, act of striking back. And so that's huge. But then, of course, the kind of game that you're describing is also modeled on this whole new genre of zombie apocalypse stories. And you can see that in the TV series, The Walking Dead, This idea that life as we know it is coming to an end and all around us are simply these terrifying creatures who want to eat our flesh, consume us, turn us into simply a means of keeping them alive. And that's an awfully powerful metaphor for how capitalism works, that we're just flesh to the monsters who rule our world. And so yeah, I think those games in which we have an opportunity, as you say, to blow them away, that's a great fantasy. And I think it does speak to a kind of a role reversal that we like to enact in terms of what we feel is going on in our lives.
1: So
2: why do you think that our capitalist system leads to these projections of monsters? And you detailed Frankenstein and and vampires and zombies, and also in African folk, Or throughout your book, why is it that our capitalist system leads to these monsters?
3: Well, I think most of the time we forget how incredibly disquieting the very mechanisms of capitalism are. And we see that more clearly when we look at parts of the world today that are going through the kind of capitalist transformations that the global north went through over the last couple of hundred years, we can see the culture shock that capitalism produces. We now take it for granted in North America, for instance, that it's normal to sell our ability to work, our life energies, our creative energies that are our capacity to work, our skills, our knowledge, our physical uh, resources and energies. We take it for granted. That selling that to an employer is normal. But in most societies, that's an evil thing to do. It is something forbidden by the moral codes of most societies that have preceded capitalism. The idea that you would make yourself, by which I mean, you know, your most personal energies, powers, resources, and capacities over for sale to somebody else somebody who then owns them during a contracted period of time, they own your energies for 8 hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day in a sweatshop, and so on. That's a bizarre, disquieting, alienating thing in most societies. But I think, in fact, even though it's been normalized in our Western capitalist societies, I think that a lot of us find it deeply objectionable and upsetting in all kinds of ways. We resent being turned into zombies who can be bossed around and ordered around in incredibly demeaning ways and we sense that we are these anonymous replaceable parts in the machinery of capitalism for the giant corporations and so on that dominate our society or the huge government bureaucracies in which some of us are inserted by employment and so on. So. I think across the history of this society, people have used different kinds of cultural images to say, more or less, this is really quite monstrous what this society does. In previous forms of life, whatever there was about them that was lacking in all kinds of ways. At least you didn't sell your basic life energies, your basic human powers to somebody else who then got to own you and control you for most of your waking hours. And I think that's what a lot of monster metaphors are about. And the vampire, of course, is the one who lives off the life energies of others. Zombies are primarily It's particularly in the classic formulation, it's changed in popular culture somewhat in recent decades, but in their classic formulation, going back to Haiti, where our original zombie image comes from, it's the mindless laborer. It's the person who's been stripped of all identity and just made a laboring beast. And so I think those are really resonant with the alienating experiences that most of us have under capitalism, but most of the time we're just put through the motions and we accept that that's the way it is. But I think there's a part of us sometimes unconscious, sometimes conscious that rebels against that and resists that and depicting it as, as monstrous is one way of at some level saying there's something wrong about this. There's something Really deeply unsettling about the idea that somebody could own me for eight hours a day and control me for eight hours a day And I think monster metaphors and monster images capture that
0: I think that's really interesting that you you think back in history and you find that this that monsters kind of Originate from places where there is that kind of oppression going on or people are are feeling put down or they're selling So much of their time like you're saying into into a system where they're not really appreciated, and so the monster takes the form of that oppressor. I'm wondering, in other societies, say like uh, in in communist societies, or socialistic kind of societies, or even places that don't practice the same religion, if these kind of monsters proliferate there as well, do they take other forms, or are they just called by different names?
3: Yeah, and I think that any society that has oppression and exploitation, you're going to get these kinds of images, no doubt about it. And, you know, the sort of authoritarian states that called themselves socialist and communist in Eastern Europe, and so on, certainly bred their own kind of monster images. Now, very often, of course, the monster was more readily identified with the tyrant at the top of the state, say a Joseph Stalin type, for instance. And so, in some ways, it's it's kind of easier to identify the monster in that kind of state-dominated, dictatorial and authoritarian society. The monster has a name and everybody can see them. Then you can spin off all kinds of stories about them. The thing which is different about market-style capitalism, and by the way, you might make a case that those so-called socialist or communist societies were kind of a form of state capitalism. That's an interesting discussion. But in the market capitalist society, what I think is sort of mysterious is how we're being dominated and exploited, because the market is not transparent. When there's a dictator who basically just dominates the whole society, it's pretty transparent. It's awful, but you know who is at the top. In a market-dominated society, there are these giant corporations with boards of directors that most of us don't understand. There are all these interlocking structures of corporate ownership behind the scenes. And corporations are, you know, by definition, these legal entities that are themselves mysterious because they have a whole series of rights in law, but they're not persons, they're these corporate institutions and markets behave in these seemingly mysterious ways where we know something unjust is happening. We know that somehow through the mechanisms of the market, some people are getting immensely rich and powerful while the majority of people are struggling to make ends meet and then often finding themselves unemployed and so on. But as I say, it's not transparent how that works. It's, you know People have a sense that there's something malevolent going on, something evil or dehumanizing is happening. But it's much, much more difficult to name how it's being done, to sort of lay it out. And in a certain sense, a market capitalist society requires a lot of detective work. It's like there's clues all around us that crimes are being committed, but the nature of those crimes and the identities of the criminals is much harder to decipher. And so I think that, yes, all societies with oppression do generate images of monstrosity, but the ones that market-style capitalism generates are really unique and really specific. And One of the things I'm trying to do in the book Monsters of the Market is to kind of delineate how the monster stories that we tell in a society like ours actually do reveal a lot of what's going on behind the scenes a lot of what these mysterious processes of domination and exploitation are about and so as you'll know from the the book for instance i talk about some of these monster stories from sub-saharan africa today where people describe going to sleep being kidnapped in their sleep turned into zombies who go and labor on invisible plantations and then they wake up exhausted. Now, to me, that's just an incredible metaphor for capitalism, this idea that you're turned into a zombie, you're taken to a plantation, you work and work and work and you wake up every morning exhausted again. And I think, in fact, that's what a lot of us experience something like that, but The fact that some of these African societies are being subjected to intensified market regimes in a way that they haven't fully before allows them to really describe this as strange and bizarre and name it by using these, these zombie metaphors. Uh, and I, so I, part of what I'm trying to get at in the book is what's unique about these monster stories. And rather than dismissing them, let's take them seriously because they may actually be telling us something about what it feels like at all kinds of unarticulated and sometimes even unconscious levels, what it feels like to be a member of this society who's outside the elite.
2: Now, you mentioned uh, a moment ago vampires and and zombies, and we hear now, even in in popular media, that stories of zombie banks and vampire banks and and all of these different monsters are... uh, readily projected onto our financial system and all of these occult monsters. I'm wondering if it's even fair to say that capitalism fosters an occult economy.
3: I think that's a wonderful question because I think in fact if you look at the financial structures we're dealing with today and people are told that something called derivatives brought banks down and caused a crisis. That seems awfully occult because these so-called derivatives are purely paper financial assets that are concocted out of debts. And this is what happened, for example, in the real estate sector with the mortgage industry. Banks started to take bundles of thousands and thousands of mortgages and they would derive from them, hence the term derivative, a new financial asset that you could buy that gave you some of the interest from the mortgage payments. That people were supposed to make. And these are incredibly esoteric instruments. They are priced according to really obscure mathematical models, often run by computers. That I'm not exaggerating when I say most of the people who were selling these so-called financial derivatives couldn't have told you how they were priced. They didn't understand the math. There was just this computer-generated uh, set of formulae that were producing prices for them. And of course, what we discovered eventually was that the math itself was nutty. These things weren't worth what people were paying for them. Well, all of that does seem awfully occult if what we mean by that, as we should, is that something unseen is going on, something mysterious, something invisible, and yet these unseen, mysterious, invisible forces are actually having a huge impact on our lives. They are actually truly bringing down banks. They're causing a real estate crisis. They're causing foreclosures. They are producing the meltdown of banks, which then ricochets into a broader economic crisis and so on. And so the idea that capitalism inherently has something occult about it, by which, as I say, we mean mysterious, unseen, invisible powers that are really impacting human life, and generally speaking, for the majority of people in a time of crisis, very much for the worst. Uh, I think that, that notion of an occult economy captures something real, and that too often we take seriously the really quite nonsensical models that mainstream economics produces. Mainstream economics wants us to believe that a capitalist economy always tends towards equilibrium. It always tends towards full employment. It always tends towards rational utilization of all resources. And I think most of us know that's a fairy tale. Most of us know that the system is much more destructive than that. It's destructive of, of human life and values. It's destructive of environmental and ecological systems that stain life and so on. And I think to capture it as an occult economy where invisible powers do really rule human lives is a much, much more profound way of getting at what goes on in a capitalist society like our own.
0: So I'm sure in the research of your book, you you found a lot of the sources of these monsters, where they actually originated from. And I wonder if you could kind of track us through the evolution of some of these ancient or, you know, beginning of capitalistic monsters to the present day.
3: I think it's a fascinating story, and the one I really take off from, which I still think is the classic monster tale, is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Here you have a story written in the first decades of the 19th century. Mary Shelley starts composing it in 1816, and it's published in 1818. And it's really remarkable what she does in that story, because to begin with, she takes her isolated, self-centered individual, Victor Frankenstein. He creates the monster. And how does he do it? Very interesting. He goes around digging up human bodies from graves and taking body parts. He then combines these body parts that he's basically acquired through grave robbing with bits of animal parts as well. And then He runs an electric current through it all to bring it to life, to animate it. Well, each part of that story of putting the monster together is fascinating because as Mary Shelley well knew, in 19th century London, where she lived, early 19th century London, grave robbing of the bodies of the poor was an actual profession. And body parts were sold for anatomy purposes, for purposes of dissection. And it was something that the poor of early capitalist England and London detested. There was no one more hated and vilified than the grave robbers. The rich, by the way, were by that point having themselves buried with their coffins inside lead vaults in guarded cemeteries, so it couldn't be done to them. So it was the bodies of the poor that were stolen and dissected. Well, then you think about what goes on in a capitalist society. The bodies of the poor are bought. They're bought and sold on the market. And your life is dissected. It's chopped up into the hours that belong to you and the hours that belong to your employers, the capitalists. And so right there, Mary Shelley's got this incredibly powerful metaphor for what working people were trying to resist with the rise of capitalism. And then What does Victor Frankenstein do? He subjects it to an energy source, electricity. And of course, the early factories were moving from water power and steam power over to electrical power. And those machineries, those factories full of machines that were consuming the labor of working class people, of course, is being depicted in this idea of the monster. A number of commentators prior to me have noticed that the monster that Mary Shelley creates is very powerfully symbolic of the emerging working class. On the one hand, you have Victor Frankenstein, who represents the capitalist class, who are creating this new monstrous creature. But the interesting thing is that in Mary Shelley's story, the so-called monster is intelligent. And this was her warning, I think, to the economic and political elites in Britain at the time. You have created this powerful, monstrous force called the working class, but it's not irrational and unintelligent. One of the things that happens in her story is that the monster learns to read, and he reads some of the classic radical texts of the time. He's articulate, he has speech, and he rebels against his creator, who oppresses him. And that's very different from what happens later with the Hollywood versions of the Frankenstein story, where he's made this inarticulate brute. And so by going back to the 19th century stories, I'm trying to say, if we look at the origins of industrial capitalism in the early 19th century, Mary Shelley is giving us a parable for that process. How people torn from the land, thrown into the cities, They're torn from the land because their land is being expropriated, it's being privatized. The commons is disappearing and people are being driven off the land. So they're being driven off the land, they're being driven into the cities, they're being uprooted, they're being thrown together in factories just the way the body parts throw together this monstrous creature. And the really interesting second side of the story, and it's the one we don't always get today, is that the monster rebels against all of this it's it's also a rebel monster the creature that that victor frankenstein creates and that's one of the reasons that in the book i'm also particularly interested in this other dimension of zombie stories which is the zombie rebel because some of the most interesting zombie stories are precisely those where if you, we can put it in these terms the zombies wake up they break the spell They start rioting and rebelling and scaring the members of polite society, the upper crust and upper class types. And there we get what I like to call the image of the zombie carnival. These people are now running rampant through the streets. They're terrifying the polite elites, the so-called civilized types who try to run our world. But that idea of the rebel monster, which we get in the Frankenstein story, we also get in a number of really interesting zombie stories and I think that's something that we may find in the era of movements like Occupy and so on the idea of the zombie rebel coming back that it's not only that capitalism zombifies us by turning us into zombie laborers who are unthinking and mindless and so on that's part of the story but I think from the very beginning of industrial capitalism. The other element, sometimes the suppressed element, has been this idea that the monsters might rebel, that they might actually remake the world. See that in a lot of these stories.
0: I think it's really interesting that you bring up the zombie rebel, and that's not really something that we hear a lot in today's society. Most times, the zombie is, you know, transformed by this terrible disease or something, and Mm -hmm. then, They become this unstoppable force that kill all the society and then transform society into this bunch of moaning, terrible-looking people walking around. But the zombie rebel is a very interesting idea. I I wish you could just explore that a little bit more and talk a little bit about what the zombie rebel does.
3: As I say, it's not the dominant imagery, and there's no question the, the one that you're describing is the dominant. Image, which is to say, particularly nowadays, we, we're getting the uh, what I was referring to earlier as the zombie apocalypse genre, of the uh, often caused we think by some kind of disease. Although in a series like The Walking Dead, it's never really clear what caused it, but, we, but it appears to be a, a disease, maybe. There has been some massive exposure to radiation, maybe there has been some, yeah, you know, some kind of biochemical account or maybe it's a, a purely medical one. That is the dominant imagery. The films that give the other image or the stories that give the other image are a minority, but I find them particularly interesting. I'll give you just one example. Uh, I've written about this uh, elsewhere. This is a film from the 90s called The People Under the Stairs. It's a Wes Craven film. It's a really, really interesting zombie film because The People Under the Stairs are basically white youth who have been captured and imprisoned in a former funeral home. There's a nice monstrous image right there. A former funeral home owned by Wealthy landlords who are only referred to as mummy and daddy. So it's a very patriarchal structure. The daddy dominates. They have these people imprisoned under their stairs. And the properties they're buying up are in the predominantly African American ghetto around their funeral home. And they're basically buying up and foreclosing on more and more properties, evicting people as they buy up buildings and gentrify them and so on. And for reasons I won't bore you with, a, a black youth, uh, probably around 12 years old or something like that, sneaks into the funeral home because his family is being evicted by the owners, Mummy and daddy. And once he gets in there, he discovers the people under the stairs who are transfixed by images of the U.S. bombing of Baghdad in 1991. There, we're essentially being told that the problem of white working class people is that they're too identified with the military machine and with patriotism and so on. But through a whole series of processes, essentially an alliance is formed between some of these white youth and this black youth who's gotten in. And they essentially wage this campaign, taking over this giant funeral home. Some of the people from the local black community break into the building to help them when they realize what's going on. And there's this wonderful image, essentially, of the capitalist landlord family being overthrown at the end of the film while they discover the secret vaults of money hidden in the home and so on. For me, that's a beautiful zombie rebel film. There are these zombified people trapped under the stairs addicted to images of the U.S. military machine, but they're terribly oppressed and they don't realize it. And then you have a youngster from the black community who wants to do something about what's going on with people being evicted. And coming together, these white and black zombies, quote unquote, rebel, and they end up taking over and they win. And as I say, that's not the dominant zombie image, but it's one with a long history. And that's just a fairly recent example of a film which really develops that aspect of it, the idea that the people who've been held down and oppressed, and in many cases zombified by patriotism and militarism and so on, actually are capable under the right circumstances of standing up, of becoming insurgent, of fighting back, of rebelling. And in that case, they completely overthrow the rule of these white landlord capitalists, mommy and daddy. Uh, so I, I get tell you that story at some length only because, I, for me, it's one of the most powerful versions of the zombie rebel. But I think it goes right back to the Frankenstein story. And there are other episodes of this throughout the history of this genre. And interestingly, one of the last times we saw some of them was both in the 1930s when we had mass social movements in North America who really were standing up for the rights of the downtrodden. And again, we get some of that in the late 1960s as well at the time of the last new left and the massive anti-war, civil rights, black power movements. Uh, You see some of those themes, for example, in the original Night of the Living Dead film, uh, George Romero's first of his great so-called zombie films. So it's there as a theme, but it isn't the dominant one. But I think it's one we need to highlight because the idea of the zombie revolt is a really powerful image and it's interesting how much people respond to it.
2: Going back to Frankenstein for a minute, and I wanted to touch on on Frankenstein again, I was wondering if really the austerity protests that we're seeing right now in Europe are paralleling this uprising that Frankenstein's monster has in Mary Shelley's book.
3: I think that's a really nice connection. and, And yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, what we're seeing from the general strikes in Greece to the movement of young people known as the indignants in Spain who've been occupying city squares and so on, all the way... uh, you know, across parts of Europe with youth and worker movements that are protesting the austerity regime in with everything from general strikes to city to, to occupations of public space to street fighting episodes and so on. I think it is exactly that, that idea of the zombie rebellion. If you look at the destruction that's happening to the social fabric in Europe right now, I mean, Greece and Spain have... Uh, Roughly 50% youth unemployment rates and about 25% general across the board unemployment rates. Hospitals in Greece lack basic medicines now. I mean, they're so just starved. Schools are closing. Pensions are being slashed. You know, the most destructive, rapacious side of capitalism is being revealed here. And it is interesting that, in a certain sense, what those popular movements are saying of youth and workers and women and so on, what they're really saying is we refuse to be zombified. We will be rebel monsters. And it doesn't really matter to us that you find this unacceptable or that you send the riot police against us. We're not going to stop. We're going to keep pouring into the streets. We're going to keep having occupations. There's no way we're going to accept the life that you're dictating to us as what we have to accept for the next generation or more as reasonable, as fair, as just. And so if that's what you offer us, we claim the streets. If that's what you offer us, we go on mass strikes. If that's what you offer us, we occupy schools. We occupy places of work. And so I think the analogy or the connection that you draw to that kind of zombie rebel idiom is very appropriate in the conditions that we're seeing and of course you know i do think we see it on a smaller scale in other kinds of contexts. and i would just mention for example even the chicago teachers strike of a few weeks ago
4: scenes of violence return to the streets of Athens, where police have resorted to tear gas to disperse anti-austerity protesters. Thousands of Greeks voiced their anger over a new round of cuts being demanded by the country's lenders in exchange for another bailout payment. This coincides with a general strike that has seen tens of thousands of people walking off the job for the second time this month. We're just hearing right now reports of a 66-year-old man having died during today's protests. Apparently, he suffered a heart attack. Just uh, how severe is the situation the Greeks continue to find themselves in?
5: Well, we're facing another uh, wave of devastating uh, cuts in wages, social protection, pensions. Uh, we're facing new tax hikes. Uh, we're facing a social disaster in what concerns our living conditions. That, that can explain why today we had such a, such massive demonstrations in Athens and all over Greece. And I think we're going to see much, much more of it. Frankenstein, you will take to the mountains. Those are your
6: people. I- I will
5: lead the third group by the
6: lake. Remember, remember get him alive if you can, but
4: get him. That crisis has led to the crisis of unity, of course, in the EU, and in Spain particularly, those separatism calls among the loudest. Is the country's government now simply overloaded with problems at this time? The country has huge problems because all of the regions are hugely in debt. We have massive white elephants of projects. We've got the Catalonians, as you say, Pushing towards the idea that they want to come back towards separatism. It is quite feasible that the EU could help oversee the breakdown of the Spanish state. We haven't got there yet, but certainly there's a movement happening and there is tangible evidence that Spain is on the brink of disaster.
6: Frankenstein Mountains! <laughs> 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 a
4: year ago, the EU leaders they claimed a huge victory in the crisis as they agreed to slash the Greek debt and increase the firepower of the main bailout fund. Do tell us, how's it been? How's
7: it going? It's uh, a catastrophe about to happen. All all that the uh, EU and and the European Central Bank have done since one year ago is simply to buy time with cosmetic measures. But the the core problem I maintain is not a sovereign debt problem, not the sovereign debt of Greece nor uh, of Italy or other countries. The core problem has been from the beginning and remains a banking system, the, the major international banks in Europe that are de facto insolvent and being held uh, held afloat on life support from the ECB. So the, the bailout measures toward Greece have not done anything to help the Greek economy or stabilize Greece. They've gone to bail out the banks in France and, and elsewhere in the EU that are are technically in, in uh, insolvency because of their... Those banks remain the source of the problem. There's no lending going on to the real economy and that's what is the root cause of 25 percent unemployment in spain and and uh, uh, greece and elsewhere uh, across the eu so the austerity that's been demanded by eu governments like germany is having the effect and the irony is this is what bruning did in 1931 that paved the way for the third Reich because of the unemployment ac- across germany and Germany is, is uh, enforcing that same, same policy on Greece, Spain and... Someone wrote that a big investment bank is like a
8: giant vampire squid, wrapped around the face of humanity, hypnotising politicians who throw money at the banks, no strings attached, no matter what damage is done, trashing the planet, forcing cuts to things that make life better goodbye schools goodbye playgrounds, goodbye jobs the bankers that we bailed out then gave themselves bonuses that were bigger than the first wave of public spending cuts Britain alone gave the banks more money than it cost to put a man on the moon six times over where did our money go Who let the banks get away with it? Why? Can vampire squids ever be useful? No government yet is brave enough to tame them.
9: Editing troll. Today you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, where we're talking about how capitalism enslaves our life force and drains all of our life and passion and, and makes us into
1: zombies. Baxter! Baxter, get back to work. You have more editing to do.
2: In your book, you wrote quite a bit about public dissections and history of dissections and the ways that capitalism as it developed related to the body. And what you were just mentioning there is we're watching states actually be dissected um, and we're watching them being dissected. Could you talk a little bit about that and that parallel?
3: A key starting point. For many of the monster stories about capitalism that were created at its origins or that we see in other parts of the world today are about this idea of people being dissected and chopped up. And I I think that image or that metaphor works on multiple levels. One I touched on earlier briefly, but I'll mention again, dissecting people from the land, taking over their land, driving them off the process that we, that we know historically as enclosure, where land that was previously open to people becomes enclosed, particularly common lands that people are able to survive by utilizing. And we see that today, big struggles around enclosure of land in Africa. This, of course, was the root cause of the Zapatista Rebellion in Chiapas in 1994 and since large parts of Latin America today struggles over enclosure of land because the land is the most basic resource that people use to reproduce themselves and keep themselves alive so that's the first level of dissection cutting off people's connection to the land or dissecting them from the land on which they've lived and then of course is this idea of your life and your life energies being dissected when you're then driven into the modern labor market because you can't live on the land anymore And your only way of staying alive is to sell your life energies over for day after day for the bulk of your waking hours. And so our lives start to feel dissected. We start to have part of our lives that we think belongs to us and part of our lives that belongs to somebody else. And is under their control. So we're chopped up and our lives are chopped up. Finally, the idea of our bodies being controlled by somebody else, which is a form both of being dissected, but also, of course, of being zombified of being turned into a zombie. Then fast forward to what's going on today. And even where it's not people being disconnected from the land, think of what they are being disconnected from or separated from or dissected in relationship to. The health care services upon which they've been able to historically rely. The pension system, which could keep them alive in their old age. A decent school system, which didn't have as the city of Detroit will soon have, classes of 60 kids in them, just you know, really being herded like cattle through the school system. The idea that society guaranteed you some basic entitlements or common goods like fair pensions, adequate health care, decent schooling, and so on, and now all of that's being eliminated. And that, too, is a form of dissection, of being cut off from things that were once part of you, that once belonged to you, that you once had a right to. And I think as a result, these vampire and zombie images that we're talking about not only carry on today, but in times like this of economic hardship and austerity, I think those images become more powerfully resonant for people. They just capture their experience in more profound ways often than ever before. And so it's not as if I'm just telling a story about the past. I'm really trying to root in the past these images which continue to resonate in our world today, particularly in the age of austerity.
0: One reason that they really do resonate is because we're exposed to these images as young children. I mean, young children are exposed to monsters in every bit of media that they consume. I mean, Sesame Street, you have Grover, Cookie Monster, The Count— Uh, Pixar flicks, you got Shrek, you have that movie called Monsters in Disney films, you have Beauty and the Beast and countless other ones, Star Wars even. How does this model of of monsters play an essential moralistic role in developing people into this capitalistic model? Does it naturalize these forces in the market?
3: I think many of these monster images do. I don't want to say they all do, because I think There is that minority set that cut in a different way. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But yes, some of what's going on with the way the culture industries kind of commercialize these monster images is that they are consciously or unconsciously normalizing what life is like in a capitalist society. They're essentially getting us so used to monstrosity if you will, that we imagine not only that this is the way it's always been, but also that it could never be any other way. That life will always have these monstrous, threatening forces to it. The idea that we could organize life more humanely, more rationally, in ways that were designed to meet human needs and not the profit machinery of corporate capitalism, that's something that's just written off by normalizing and naturalizing monsters like that. So I do think that that kind of description you give is very pertinent and, 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 and really an accurate kind of depiction of what we see a lot of the time around us. But I also think that there's the other side, that part of what we see at times and places in literature, in film, in, in particular, are monster stories that are cutting the other way that are actually opening up some critical space for thinking about the world in which we live that are depicting forces of capitalism as in some way monstrous. And to me, those are the most interesting ones because those are the ones that are in, if, you, if I can put it in these terms, denormalizing or denaturalizing capitalism. They're saying to us that there is actually something quite malevolent There's something quite frightening and monstrous about what's going on, and maybe, they just at least raise the question, maybe life wouldn't have to be run and controlled by monstrously powerful institutions and corporations. They, at that level, create some space for critical reflection, and so... I think the Mary Shelley Frankenstein story in its original does that. The People Under the Stairs film that I was talking about would be another example. Today, we find some monster writers like China Miéville, who really uses a lot of that imagery in a highly critical way, almost a subversive way, to open up for us the idea that there might be other ways of organizing human social life, and that's the utopian element that runs through, to me, the most interesting monster stories.
2: So in, um, in your book, you didn't just cover Frankenstein and uh, zombies. You also spoke about Karl Marx and how he drew on a lot of monsters in his work. And you actually uh, have one of the quotes from him in your book. And he said that capital is dead labor, which vampire-like, lives only by sucking living labor. And there's lots of vampire metaphors in all of uh, Marx's writings. Why did he draw on so many monsters in his work?
3: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we often are given an image, particularly if people are exposed to Marx through the mainstream media or maybe through an individual college or university class or something like that, if they don't try to just depict him as wild-eyed revolutionary bent on destruction, then it's often that he's this dry, difficult figure who wrote this incredibly complex book called Capital and nobody could really understand it and so on. So one of the things I'm trying to raise in the book is, isn't it interesting that one of our most important critics of capitalism, whose work is enjoying a kind of revival today in light of the crisis that began in 2008, isn't it interesting that in this big book that he wrote about how capitalism works as a system, he kept coming to these monster images, like the one you quoted about capital being dead labor that lives by sucking the life out of living labor that and it does so vampire like those are incredible images because they're saying to us first off look it's not that difficult to understand what capitalist corporations are capital is simply the form taken by the labor that has been sucked off from diverted from the people who create the wealth moved into the hands of the employing class. And so capital is actually vampire-like in exactly that sense. It lives off living labor without more and more inputs of living labor. It can't keep its system going. The system would literally go through into cardiac arrest if there weren't more and more living labor feeding the machinery of profits. And so you've got there a very powerful image that uses the vampire metaphor, and I think that Marx is, as I said to you earlier, too often read as a kind of dry analysis of capitalism. Whereas in fact, he's trying to tell us a story where he needs those kinds of images that he wants to give us a sense of a, an alienating world turned upside down, in which the dead, the machinery of capitalism, lives off the living, and it does so in a vampire-like fashion. And I think. One of the reasons I want to highlight Marx's use of those monster metaphors is because I think it's a great way of introducing to many people questioning the system today the importance of trying to read that analysis that Marx gives about capitalism as a kind of system of alienation and exploitation. Those images A really good access point to the analysis that he tries to develop and it's a way of bringing it to life and giving it sort of concrete imagery that it's often lacking when people try to explain it in fairly dry technical economic terms. And I was really struck that once I looked for those images and marks, they're everywhere You know, this is really a set of images that he uses over and over again for critical purposes. And I hope that by bringing that dimension of Marx's writings back into the conversation, it will make him more accessible to people. It will make him seem less daunting and difficult. And it will give people, as I said, an access point or a prism through which they can approach what he's doing in these critical texts because I think it tells us something about how his work continues to be relevant. Those images haven't disappeared. As we've been talking about, they're proliferated through our culture. And if Marx is using them in interesting, critical ways, that might be all the more reason to go back and take a look at how he was trying to analyze the system.
2: You were mentioning vampires, and also, along with the imagery of vampire banks, we also have zombie companies now. And in your book, you drew out a bit of the story of Enron, and Enron mm-hmm. had a valuation of $65 billion, and another great example is Lehman Brothers, $690 billion and then just like magic, these things vanish overnight. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of Enron and how that happened?
3: Enron is is really a wonderful case study in what we were describing earlier in our conversation as the occult economy. This is a corporation that begins as a firm in the energy industry, and then it quickly decides, you know what, there's a lot more money to be made simply by selling paper assets than by, you know, actually building pipelines and that sort of thing. And so they try to model themselves into what they describe as a virtual corporation, a corporation that doesn't actually have hard assets, but simply sells you paper contracts. You want oil from somebody, we'll sell you a piece of paper, which gives you the right to claim oil from somebody else. And so these are all assets that are derived because they're just paper but their claims on the production of goods and services elsewhere. Well, so crazy did their commitment to these derivatives get that they essentially became just a casino. You could eventually go to Enron and buy derivatives on the weather. And by that I mean you were simply making a bet as to whether California or Florida would have an early frost that would damage the orange crop. And so you buy a derivative on California or Florida's weather. And it became just a huge trading machine, which was a casino-like center for selling paper claims to something or other, which, as I say, were nothing more ultimately in most cases than just gambling, just bets wagers. And one of the problems with those kinds of wagers, a company, as you say, in Enron's case, it was valued at $65 billion, is that essentially they're the house in a gambling casino. But they're the house that tries to make the right bets. And all it takes is a series of misplays. In other words, let's say for the sake of argument that they sell you paper assets guaranteeing you that Florida won't have an early frost, or that Bear Stearns Investment Bank on Wall Street will never collapse. And all it takes is a series of calamities, and all of a sudden, the house is losing. And that's what happened to Enron. They were a big gambling machine, and all it took was a series of really bad wagers on their part. And what Fortune magazine five times called Enron the greatest corporation in America. Well, that greatest corporation in America, as I describe in the book, in a process of under a year, melted down from being worth $65 billion to being worth effectively nothing. And it did that because of this casino capitalism that I'm describing. One of the reasons I like to tell that story in the book is that Enron was one of the early warning signs about what was coming on Wall Street because more and more of the Wall Street investment banks had turned themselves into very similar kinds of institutions as Enron had. They had a lot of bets. They were holding an awful lot of stuff that was based on the premise, for example, that real estate prices could never fall, that there could never be a crash in the housing market. Completely nonsensical, but that's where all their chips were. And so as soon as a tremor hit directly related to the paper assets that they were holding, and all of a sudden they started to lose their value. These banks were finished. That kind of virtual capitalism became the rage, particularly in the 2000s. And what we're seeing today is how fragile it is, but also when it starts to crash, how much damage it can do. And we're back to the occult economy theme there. When these institutions go down, they destroy human lives. And that's a story that I wanted to tell so that People understand that when we talk about the monstrosity of this economic system, we're not just using it metaphorically. There's a literal sense in which corporations that are simply producing nothing, not adding to the goods and services, the genuine wealth of our society in any way, can melt down and yet destroy human lives on a huge scale.
0: And that's a, a big-time theme on this show. We just talked with Dmitry Orlov a couple episodes ago who also believes that it's going to be pretty tough to avoid the kind of economic crashes that you're just talking about without a zombie apocalypse of some sort or another. Now, do you think that there's any sort of way that we could avoid this coming you know, population decline or zombie apocalypse, however you want to call it? Is there a way that we can just skip that and get to the next phase of humanity or human evolution.
3: Well, I think there is, but I don't want to suggest that there will not be some really really hard difficult times because if we look at what's happening to countries like Greece right now or you look at Latvia that you know just fired a third of all teachers for instance. I mean, they're engaged in slash and burn economics. And that's inflicting a lot of hardship on people. But the reason that I don't think that the sort of zombie apocalypse scenario is inevitable is exactly because what we were talking about earlier, the possibility of the zombie rebellion, the other side of the zombie story or the zombie idiom. It's not just that the zombie story tells us about the terrible wasteland future that is out there. Although that is out there. That is a possibility. Capitalism driven to a generation of austerity will do some really terrible things to human life, to the natural environment, and to the social environment. It really will. But we shouldn't discount the possibility for the kind of social resistance that we're seeing in parts of the world today. One of the things we've noticed in the last few years, the era of the Arab Spring, the Occupy Movement and so on, is that these rebellions are contagious. They set off a chain of similar rebellions. And while those rebellious movements, those m- movement, those movements of resistance and opposition, by all means have lots of strategic problems confronting them, at the same time, they're the hope for a different kind of future. And I think one way of thinking about where we are right now is to say that in some ways the alternatives confronting us are the zombie apocalypse or the zombie rebellion. And we don't know which way it will go, but that there is an alternative because really what the zombie rebellion means is the people who've been downtrodden, oppressed, dominated by the corporate machinery, treated as mindless laborers and good for nothing else and so on. Actually, those people do have incredible creative powers and energies which, when they are unleashed, have a really contagious, infectious character. People start to discover new solidarities, new ways of reorganizing life communally, of feeding one another, supporting one another, taking over factories that are being shut down, reorganizing their school system, occupying public space. And that's the hope of the zombie rebellion, and so I recognize all the threats and the frightening threats of the zombie apocalypse, but I wouldn't want your listeners not to be thinking about the alternative to that. And that's what I describe in the book as the hopeful monsters, the monsters that point to our future in which actually the zombie rebellion creates that festival of the oppressed in which we democratize our society, create new forms of solidarity and human cooperation and begin to move social and human life in a new and I think possibly inspiring direction.
2: So that's really the way to defeat these monsters, is to recognize the kind of monster that we are, and uh, instead of being the downtrodden, unconscious zombie, we're, we're waking up and embodying that other alternative zombie.
3: If the zombie has always been a split metaphor, or the monster has always been a split metaphor, that other side of the Mary Shelley Frankenstein story that I was talking about earlier is basically of the collectivity of the majority, those people who don't own but live by working, uh, those people banding together and rising up together and shaping a new future, and I think that is the alternative.
10: And what goes on when it gets late Along about midnight the ghosts and banshees Get together for a jamboree There's ghosts with horns and
6: saucer eyes Some have fangs about this size Some short and fat, some tall and thin And some don't even bother to wear their skin I'm telling you,
9: brother, it's a fearful sight Just to see what goes on in the night
10: When the spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with a
6: fiendish glee.
2: And that wraps up our interview with David McNally talking about monsters and the ways that we use monster stories to describe the feelings we have living in a capitalist system and to talk more about monsters and zombies and capitalism. We have KMO of the Sea Realm podcast and it's been way too long since we've had KMO back on the show, but it's great to have you here today, KMO, to talk more about zombies.
11: Hey, it's my pleasure.
2: So at the end of the interview, David McNally was saying that despite all of the possibilities of a zombie apocalypse style collapse and into capitalism, he was hoping that we'll band together in a zombie carnival and a zombie uprising. And so KMO, with all the zombie lore and literature and film that you've explored, what do you think about the zombie myth and the possibility of a zombie uprising?
11: Well, I was uh, a movie came to mind. You know, Seth had said, "Well, the the zombie that we're most familiar with in popular media is something that comes about as a result of a disease or something that turns normal people into these flesh, you know, flesh-eating ghouls." And uh, David McNally was like, "Well, yeah, that that's the predominant image, but there's also this image of the zombie revolt. You know, the zombie rebel, the zombies who organize and overthrow their their masters." And there's a, a great film by George Romero that combines both of those. You know, the the zombie archetype that Seth was describing is the one that was defined in Night of the Living Dead, which was George Romero's first zombie film. And that really sort of merged the um, the vampire and the zombie into one entity and sort of pushed to the, uh, the sidelines the idea that a zombie is slave labor, something created by a voodoo priest in order to just exploit somebody. And instead, the zombie is something that is just run amok and is... Propagating wildly and destroying civilization in a very short time. But in Land of the Dead, which was a 2005 film by George Romero, this is the one that comes after Day of the Dead, but long after in terms of production time. We've got this one enclave. Uh, There's a high-rise building called Cabini Green in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is, uh, fortified. It's got rivers on two sides and a big electric fence and there is a human enclave inside. Most of the people living in poverty, but a select few living in this luxury high rise where they have, you know, luxury dining and fine shops and people are smoking, uh, Cuban cigars and drinking nice alcohol. And this is all made possible by this big military vehicle called Dead Reckoning, which they send out into the suburbs and the surrounding countryside and whatnot to raid stores and bring back the luxury goods that allow these people to live in this posh existence while the rest of the humans around them live in abject poverty and misery. And the Dead Reckoning vehicle goes out and it shoots fireworks into the air and distracts the zombies. So the zombies are all staring up at the sky as the the minions of the rich people led by dennis hopper he's uh, the the sort of real estate developer mogul guy who is running the whole operation they collect supplies and bring them back and, and keep the wealthy in power and you know i don't have to say too much to unpack the the political message there but what happens later in the film is that one of the zombies somebody who in the credits although he has no speaking lines is called big daddy he was a gas station attendant he starts to realize what's going on and he leads a group of zombies to the river which is one of the barriers that keeps the zombies out of Pittsburgh and big daddy figures out that they don't breathe they can just walk across the river on the bottom and come up on the other side and so he leads an invasion into Pittsburgh and basically overthrows the the human oppressors because the humans have been just abominably cruel to the zombies who at this point you know 3 years after the zombie apocalypse are basically minding their own business Like Big Daddy, you know, he sits at the front of his gas station and when anybody runs over, you know, the the hose that rings the bell, he goes out and he picks up the pump as if he's going to pump some gas. And the zombies are, they've just, you know, gone and found a routine for themselves that makes sense and would probably leave the humans alone if the humans would leave them alone. But of course, in order to maintain this posh lifestyle that a very few humans are living at the expense of most of the rest of the humans and most of the zombies in the surrounding area, the humans keep bothering the zombies. So there is a zombie uprising, but it is within the context of the Romero-style zombie apocalypse. So it it merges those two narratives that uh, David McNally was describing.
0: You are somewhat of an aficionado on zombies. You have your own Z-Realm podcast show that you host with your co-host Marty. I wanted to ask you what that attraction to the zombie was and what that's like and, wh- and kind of why you decided to develop that relationship with zombies in that sh- in that show.
11: Well, this is a question I've been asked a few times, and my my genuine answer is any explanation that I give which imposes some sort of political or ideological significance onto the zombie narrative is just after the fact, sort of post hoc. Scrambling for an explanation because I've been having zombie apocalypse-style dreams since I was in my teens, probably since I saw uh, the original Dawn of the Dead. I went into a a place that was sort of a, an underage club for people into break dancing, and there's video games there. It's a place called Barker's Circus World at Independence Center in Independence, Missouri. And I walked in there with some friends. We were there for to dance, but we were there early, and they were showing Dawn of the Dead on a big screen TV, but without sound, and I sort of came in in the middle, and I had no idea what I was watching, but I saw all these zombies tearing into the abdomens of, you know, living people and pulling their guts out, and I was just, I think, horrified and couldn't look away, you know, it's sort of the, um, the rubber-necking phenomenon where you can't look away from the accident, even though you realize deep down that you are it's a really shameful thing to keep staring at it, but you can't help yourself. And I think from that moment on, I was hooked. And then later, I would see correspondences to things, other things that I was interested in, interests that I had acquired later. So, you know, an ongoing theme of the Sea Realm podcast is the potential for the collapse of industrial civilization, you know, themes that are very familiar to listeners to the Extra Environmentalist podcast. And there's a, a big piece of the zombie apocalypse narrative that is very relevant To this notion of sudden collapse. And when I think about a collapse, I think about money, the fact that there isn't enough physical money to go around to keep the systems that we are accustomed to and that we depend upon operating. So if electricity were to go out, say, or if the computerized, you know, interconnected networks that basically sustained digital money were to stop functioning and your debit card didn't work anymore and your atm didn't know who you were and wouldn't dispense any cash if if everything had to be conducted via you know cash transaction all of a sudden then basically civilization as we know it you know 21st century civilization anyway would grind to a halt and things would be really ugly we live in this just-in-time delivery system where after a very short time i've heard 2 to 3 days the store shelves will be empty of food and if people can't get paid if people can't buy gasoline if people cannot receive credit for inventory that they are restocking you know all this just stops and suddenly all of these people around you who until just recently were just your environment there were too many of them for you to know personally but You you interacted with them seamlessly through the exchange of money, most of it virtual money, and you never really had to pay much attention to one another. You're just exchanging tokens for services and goods and things and, for the most part, ignoring all the people in in your environment because there's just way too many of them for you to interact with them and relate to them as other human beings. Suddenly, this unremarkable piece of your environment becomes the main threat to your existence, suddenly most of the people who were just ignoring you or were smiling in the elevator or whatnot, now they are ravenous fiends who have an insatiable need that they need to satisfy, and they can't think of anything other than satisfying that need. And to satisfy that need, they need to chew on your face. So... The, the, the parallels are just uh, very striking and very obvious for me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the zombie apocalypse imagery runs throughout thinking about the end of industrial civilization and a potential for a really rapid collapse. And Camo, you used to live at the Ecovillage Training Center in Tennessee, and now you're in New York City, one of the largest cities in the world. And I'm wondering if the validity or if that imagery has changed at all for you when thinking about collapse being there such a large city.
11: Well, Justin, as as you noted when you were here, New York City is, is different from the rest of the country in that there is so much international money flowing through this city that there is the illusion that business as usual is sustainable for the long term. You know, when I drive from here, say, to Tennessee, and I have to pass through all of these... Little towns and uh, the hinterlands, basically, where I can see the decay, where I can see the fact that the rest of the country is not thriving the way that, you know, places like uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where Marty lives, and, and New York City are thriving. It's it's like driving through different mindsets, through different realities, through different universes. But here in New York, there is a bubble of normalcy, normality, the uh, the illusion of business as usual, anyway, and. Even somebody like me, who's been talking to James Howard Kunstler and Dmitry Orlov and Guy McPherson and you know the, the other peak doomers, uh, it's it's easy for me to slip into this complacency of oh everything's fine, people are making money, the system is is humming along as normal, you know the the system and its its guardians are omnipotent, and they could never let anything happen to us. Now, before I came here, I made sort of a bodhisattva vow saying that what happens to my society happens to me, and I'm not going to try to avoid the collapse or avoid what the rest of the country is going to go through by huddling with the hippies out in the forest in Tennessee, you know, and just living with the Amish there. I was going to go and... Whatever happened, I was going to be there when it happened, and whatever happened to my country, to my civilization, to my society would happen to me.
0: That Bodhisattva Val kind of works right into the conversation that we had with Stephen Jenkinson in episode number 51, where he talks about the twilight of our culture here in the United States and the culture of dying and death in general. In a little, in to paraphrase his words, he says that we should embrace that dying Person or culture, in this case, and it seems to me that's exactly what you're doing. Is you're going into the heart of our culture. New York City is is in many in many people's eyes considered the heart of American culture, and you're, you're you're right there and you're embracing it and you're witnessing it and you're learning and you're trying to be there for the death of of a of a culture. Is this kind of the reason that you're there, and then the reason that you're you're witnessing
11: this this dying? I could say yes, but we all know that the truth is I moved here for love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Personal romantic love, not, sure, not, sure. not love for the society, love for all life, for love consciousness. You know, I, I tried uh, hiding out in the boondocks and discovered that I really need more social contact than that environment affords. And
2: as the CROM podcast has developed over time in the past, you worked in cube world and experienced those life draining forces that David McNally was talking about in our conversation with him today in trading time for money and feeling that level of abstraction and the occult economy he was talking about. And I wondered if you had any comments about that from your time in that world.
11: I really resonated with David's comments there. You know, being the biblical rat, I was expected to be that interchangeable part. You know, I was expected to trim away the parts of myself that didn't fit what it was that my corporate employer was looking for me to do. And really the parts of myself that I I most treasure, the things that I'm most proud of, the things that I want to cultivate more, are the things that I had to trim away. And the only thing that they were really interested in for me was my ability to basically multitask and to speak clearly and to type quickly and to um, either customers off the phone, customers who needed tech support, get them to hang up or tell them something. That's all my employer wanted me to do. And yeah, it was really, really miserable. I mean, when I quit that job, I didn't quit because I had something better lined up. I quit because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wasn't going to be doing that.
0: The zombie theme has gone in in many, many directions. It's gone, you know, Nazi zombies. We've got zombies in places that are like vampire zombies. And and we have, you know, the zombies that are doing all sorts of different dances. Where do you see zombies going next, Camo?
11: (laughs) Well, where do I see zombies going next? Um, Oak thinks that uh, zombies have jumped the shark. And uh, I think that when the movie of World War Z comes out, that might just be the case. I think that might be that might really test the um, the appeal of the zombie type and the zombie narrative. Uh, I don't know if you've followed the production at all, but this is something that Brad Pitt's production company has been working on. You know, they acquired the rights to the the Max Brooks novel World War Z, and. You know, World War Z is uh, an oral history. It is a collection of stories from different people from around the world from the zombie apocalypse. It's told in um, a nonlinear style. So we know very early on that humans win the zombie war and we're just getting the details. And that doesn't really work for an action film, a big Hollywood film. So they've restructured the narrative, you know, to make it something that a single heroic character can be the the central through line in, and I heard that they um, they were coming back, like the whole thing had been wrapped, and now they're coming back to do, I forget the exact number, it was like 8 to 12 weeks of reshoots, and you know, 8 to 12 weeks could be the shooting schedule for a film, so to, to reshoot that much, it's like they're reshooting the whole film, which means it must absolutely suck, and they are... You know, shooting scenes basically to wrap around the special effects, the expensive special effects set pieces that they've already completed. That's my theory anyway. So um, Crash and Burn could be the immediate future for the the zombie uh, as a really mainstream media icon. But because zombie films are so – the bar to entry is so low – you know, the basic storyline is there's a zombie apocalypse. You don't even have to show it because everybody is so familiar with it already. You just have to indicate that it's going on. Then you can follow one or two characters through, you know, a very tight sort of uh, claustrophobic environment, which is very cheap to shoot. You put makeup on a few people, you know, to show that there are some zombies and you can do something that is really, uh, really gripping psychologically without a whole lot of expense or a lot of outlay. So I think The possibilities for that are nearly limitless, and I think we're going to see a lot more like that. A a film that comes to mind for me that I'm really – was really struck by is one called Colin. It's a British film. It's low budget, and it follows one guy who's named Colin who in the very first scene of the film is bitten by a zombie. And so he becomes a zombie, and we sort of follow him through this series of vignettes as he just wanders aimlessly through London and it's, it's a very small film. We don't see huge hordes of zombies, but we do get to see just amazing little, little tidbits, little little vignettes that you wouldn't think about, like two kids up on the roof of a building watching zombies walk by, waiting for ones that have really nice shoes, and going down and clubbing them on the head and taking their shoes, and then going back up to, you know, to the roof of the building to look for their next zombie victim. Just great stuff like that. So, I'm actually kind of looking forward to the time when Hollywood and, you know, big media companies like AMC have decided that zombies are passé and that they're moving on to the next big thing because there will be a core of people who are really interested in zombies and really interested in telling compelling stories and the zombie archetype and the zombie narrative is a great vehicle for doing that on a small budget.
2: Yeah. And Camo, you've been thinking about and dealing with zombies for quite some time now and commenting on zombies and zombie media. And I wanted to ask, has your view of zombies changed over time? There's a the consumerist zombie um, and other metaphors for zombies. Has your view of zombies shifted at all?
11: I can't say I've seen a shift in the way I approach zombies other than I just track the, the zombie media. So the the podcast that you mentioned, the Z-Realm podcast, which is really Marty's podcast. He does all the, the post-production on that, and he maintains the website. I just get on the phone from time to time and, and chatter. Um, but the Z-Realm podcast, we may mostly we are reacting to the AMC series, The Walking Dead. And when it's in hiatus between seasons, then we're watching zombie films. And so it's, it's really the media that is guiding my active interest in what I have to say about zombies.
0: So any uh, zombie film recommendations for our listeners for this special Halloween episode?
11: Sure, sure. I mean, there's loads, but if folks have not seen Fido, uh, that is a great one. Just F-I-D-O, it's the name of the lead character zombie who's uh, played by Billy Connolly in this film. And it's a film where there was a zombie war in what seems to be the 1950s. And we don't know how much time has passed, but America is now reduced to a cluster of uh, enclaves. And these are basically leave it to beaver style 1950s towns that are surrounded by fences and that they're run all by a single corporation called Zomcom. And this corporation is, they've harnessed zombies as slave labor. And the zombie from Haitian lore was a slave. And also, as David McNally was talking about uh, from African lore, is a slave. Somebody who has been bewitched and either brought back from the dead or tricked into thinking they've been brought back from the dead to serve as labor. And that's something that we got away from with the George Romero-style zombie films. And Fido brings it back in. The zombies are slaves, and there is, in effect, a zombie revolution. So it it ties in with what David McNally is talking about as well. So if folks have not seen Fido, I give that one my highest recommendation. Also just beautifully shot,
2: very cool. So KMO any last thoughts about zombies or monsters?
11: Zombies or monsters. Well, as the even the marketing for The Walking Dead points out, you know, which means it's it's really obvious by now. It's it's a mainstream trope in the zombie apocalypse it is the other living humans who are most to be feared. The zombies are pretty brainless. They're pretty predictable. If you've survived three or four months after the zombie apocalypse, if it were just zombies you had to deal with, you'd probably be in good shape. But it's the other humans around who are the real danger because the humans are treacherous yeah. Zomb- zombies are pretty predictable predictable and their uh, their motivations are really simple and they they don't have any ego they don't have any pride they don't have any desire to put you in your place. they just want to eat your face. Yeah, they don't fall in love either. <laughs> no, they don't.
2: And, KMO, I'm also a fan of the Walking Dead series, and I wanted to get some of your thoughts about where you think the series is headed and where it's at right now.
11: Well, uh, if you listen to the Z-Realm, you'll know that Olga and I have both read ahead in the comics, so we know where the story is headed, you know, in very general terms. So uh, in so the it's comic... That's a good
0: question least, to ask you, huh?
11: Yeah. In the comic, at least, you know once they're into the prison and it seems like they're in a safe place, boy, things are about to get really, really nasty and brutal. And it's because they come into conflict with a neighboring town that's run by just this awful, awful despot called the governor. And I know that the governor has been cast and he will be, he will be making an appearance here in this season of The Walking Dead. So I've, I've got a pretty good idea where it's going. I'm really thrilled with the, th- the uh, third season so far thought the second season kind of dragged in parts they spent way too long on that farm they took they just squandered a whole lot of opportunities to grapple with what life would be like without electricity and in the second season on the farm they shot mostly in the daytime There was a town nearby where they could go and they had limitless supplies of gasoline and basically anything else they needed. And there was just never any coming to grips with the fact that we're really, really dependent upon electricity. And now I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a show on NBC called Revolution, which is about the electricity going out and basically the government falling and really sort of uh, tyrannical replacement governments rising up and just the misery that the people are under. And again... They're totally squandering the opportunity to show really how dependent we were upon electricity, because everybody is pretty, everybody is clean, everybody has clean clothes. They burn candles, they burn candles in huge quantities, and they burn them in the daytime so that they can board up the buildings, you know, board up the windows and have this sort of mood atmosphere in the daytime. And it's just it's it's such a lost opportunity. That's TV trying to grapple with important issues. Although I think the zombie narrative is great because. It allows us to grapple with notions of the end of civilization, the sudden discontinuity in civilization, by introducing this fantastic element, which is impossible. And because it's impossible, we don't really have to worry about it being too deadly serious or having a too heavy-handed uh, a social message in it. And we can just go along and, and treat it as an action-adventure horror sort of thing, when really it is, it is grappling with something very important and something that is unspeakable in the mainstream news media, which is... The potential for collapse.
9: Walking in the mini, there's food on the floor, there's carts everywhere, there's blood on the door. I just want to buy some snacks and get back home, but these ghouls are trying to eat my bones. When I finally get home I turn on the TV The undead on the evening news is all I can see So I pop in a movie and I try to relax Listen to me while I tell you some facts Fact: The zombie apocalypse is messing up my week The internet is always down can update the twitter stream the zombie apocalypse
2: And thanks to KMO and David McNally for coming back on to The Extra Environmentalist. KMO was one of the first interviews that we ever did on The Extra Environmentalist, and David McNally was on episode number 30 last year talking about his book Global Slump and the Occupy Movement and success stories from around the world where people have risen up against corporate power to help build a new world. That's right. KMO is
0: one of our long-term favorite podcasters. He was one of the reasons that Justin and I both got involved with listening to podcasts. And, you know, definitely one of the reasons that he and I started this podcast without KMO's loving guidance the extra environmentalist might not be where it is today. It was great to hear from David McNally again about the monsters. Justin, what do you think your
2: favorite monster is? I have always really enjoyed the Frankenstein story just because of the mad scientist element of it. And I really enjoyed how David McNally was able to tie that into some of the economic issues around the world of building that class that may uprise, a warning to the elites. And we see the austerity protests that are going on in Europe right now. And there's not really an equivalent in the United States or in Canada. And part of the reason is because things aren't that bad, but also they are that bad. There really have been horrific economic problems here on this continent for a long time. But because the United States has more of a political union, they can just print money and paper over it. And so the unemployment and the severe problems can kind of be... Uh, can kind of be hidden away. And so we're going through 2012 and we may actually make it through the entire year without a big financial crash, but uh, you never know, after the election, they could turn to talking about the debt ceiling and other issues and it could spook markets and do all kinds of crazy things and maybe there could be a financial crash this year. But as we know from talking to all the many guests on our show, economists, commentators about the financial system, the whole thing's slowly going broke and whether that happens all at once or slowly over time, we're headed in that direction. That is nothing like a little bit of doom to talk about in a Halloween Episode.
0: It's it's something that you kind of goes hand in hand. Personally, for me, I would have to say that the zombie is one of the best uh, monsters out there, and I really enjoyed the uh, the comparison that David made from zombies to the actual workers in this country. You know, we kind of slog around, just don't really think about what's happening, and there's people out there that are that are very much exploiting us for a number of different ways, and and we don't even think about it. There's a lot of historical presidents as zombies as, as kmo talked about and how and how David talked about as well about where they came from and and it's very interesting the origins of these these mythical monsters that we don't really think about it on a normal Basis.
2: Yeah, and I was thinking the other day about how David was tying together this unconscious, unspoken feeling that we have in a capitalist system and the way that we express it through monster stories. And I was wondering about even more modern equivalents like the alien abduction story that so many people experience, where they're being taken in the night and they're being probed and having body parts cut out or things implanted in them it's really kind of a commentary on even our technological capitalism that we have, where we're having our brains taken from us and put into this technological system and having all of these implants put in us. And I just think it's an interesting metaphor. And perhaps some of the alien abduction stories that we hear um, are this kind of unconscious story that's being developed, this experience of our unconscious mind and what it has in our global system today. That's right, Justin. Our mind tries desperately
0: to come up with imagery to cope with the fact that we live in a society that is very much repressive of so many of our basic human wants and needs. We fulfill these things by watching television, by closing ourselves off and putting ourselves in front of these virtual reality things that very much – kind of go along with these made-up realities that monsters live in. When you spend all day deluding yourself in front of a media source, it's very easy to make up an environment where a monster might exist. And it's not too far of a jump from, you know, a crazy angry boss who yells at you all day to a crazy angry zombie who's coming and banging on your door and wanting to eat
2: you. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a a jump, but it's it's not too far. Yes. And as we know from many of the guests that we've had on our show, we really do live in a zombie economy with vampire banks right now. And for biophysical reasons, our economy is headed for very dire circumstances if we don't have a debt jubilee and retool the way that we think about economics and the ways that an economy can work and serve people. And it's really sad that Our political leaders in the U.S. and the EU aren't thinking anything about that. I was just in the U.S. recently in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and I saw some of the coverage of the debates. And these guys are just talking the U.S. presidential debates. And these guys are just talking about stuff that really has no bearing on the reality of the situation, but it really was great being back in the U.S. and meeting so many amazing listeners in Los Angeles and San Francisco, people who have been enjoying the show and putting those faces to names, which is such an important thing to do at this time right now. And it was also really interesting to be in Los Angeles, a city that has an infrastructure that was built for a completely different world, where gasoline was cheap and where you can just drive with cars that are affordable and everybody can have a car. And now that those underlying realities have changed and we're on a completely different track because of peak oil and energy depletion, like we talk about on our show, um, the whole place is really falling apart. I was in uh, downtown Los Angeles at the Staples Center which is like this entertainment mecca and there is an nba game and literally just a few blocks away there is a guy camping under a freeway because he was homeless and it's that kind of contrast of extreme wealth that really makes it into a dystopia and there's signs on condo towers for like 1.2 million dollar condos and just a few blocks away there's a guy living under a freeway overpass because he can't Uh, for it to live and you think about the amount of poverty that exists in the U.S. right now and it's really a scary thing to think about uh, for this Halloween.
0: It is a scary thing to ponder this Halloween season. What is not a really scary thing to ponder is this extremely important news that we have to send to all of our listeners. It's very, very important to listen up closely.
2: And Seth, give me a drum roll, please. The Extra Environmentalist is now a nonprofit organization. Yay! That's right. Thanks to a very special friend in San Francisco, a very close friend of the show, we now have a nonprofit structure that we can use for our show and our media work. And so that means if you have donated to the show, This year, in 2012, your donation is now tax-deductible, depending on the laws in your country, definitely for U.S. contributions. Your contributions are tax-deductible. Not so sure about Canada and the many other countries where listeners have donated from but soon we'll be posting the tax ID on our website for you to use, and if you need a receipt for your donation, just let us know, and we'll be glad to issue that. But we have some big plans for our future expansion around ideas for developing educational material with past guests. Just think how amazing it'd be if some of the people we have spoken with, you could watch a, you know, 10 or 15 course series online with some of their their teachings, and we're going to be talking about how we plan to structure that quite a bit more in the near future so look out for big plans there
0: so that's right and you were just waiting for an excuse to throw those dollars our way now is a perfect opportunity to support your favorite podcast out there a shameless plug, I know, but you know sometimes you got to do it. And this is a very exciting development, and there's going to be a lot of news coming out of it, and we can't wait to share it with you. And, and I'm excited about it. And some other people who are already excited about the extra environmentalists, and in fact have sent in their hard-earned dollars, are a whole list of people we have to thank today. Walter from Oregon sent us some dollars and wanted to say that he really enjoyed the show and said tell us keep the, and told us to keep up the hard work. He's listening to Janice Harvey and he thought she was really thought provoking
2: and we also heard from Kim in Edmonton Alberta and Kim said hope you don't mind this dirty oil money I work for a company that gets business from the oil sands but Kim says I'm happy to direct it to a show that makes available alternate and deeper discussion of our crazy modern world and maybe i'm not crazy after all to be concerned the only thing i wish is that the videos were available in audio only format too and kim that is something that we have been hoping to do for quite a while we've just been way too busy in our non-podcast lives to do it and hopefully this december when i have a bit of downtime that can happen very soon
0: we heard from gregor out in belgium one of our fantastic belgian listeners who are just you know out there in Belgium doing all those things that people in Belgium do. Thanks so much, Gregor.
2: We heard from Greg down in Queensland, Australia, who gave us a really fantastic donation. And Greg, I'm really jealous of you in Australia. You're now headed in the summer instead of Vancouver where it's cold and rainy and gray. Which is like, it is most of the year, isn't it, Justin?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to Derek out in Santa Clara as well as Rebecca out in Atlanta. Rebecca is a long-term listener. Listener one of my good friends from a long time ago, and she was good enough to send in a birthday slash extra environmentalist donation to the show, and it was really, really great to hear from her again.
2: Thank you, Derek, for your donation from Santa Clara, California, and we were also really fortunate to receive a donation from Danny in New Orleans, and we also got a voicemail from Danny.
12: Hey. Danny Dead Nettles. I'm calling from the belly of the beast, the uh, front lines of climate change and peak oil, New Orleans, Louisiana. I was just gonna tell you, I really appreciated y'all's show, uh, where you interview where you're interviewing Stephen Jenkinson. Um I was playing it in the in the dish pit when I at my dishwashing job, you know, listening to the podcast, and one of my coworkers came in from the front and she just stopped and paused as she was getting something out of the dish rack and she just she started crying i guess she had had a an experience of losing a loved one and i guess you know i guess steven jenkinson was was telling her that she was that she had permission I, anyway so i really appreciate how uh how um sort of on the edge y'all are with with all these ideas um seth Mosa is the funny guy who uh Keeps everybody uh, light in the face of all the chaos, and Seth has that sort of earnest sincerity. I, I appreciate all that. And in, and in other news, we got um, we got a new honey harvest from a feral beehive in a construction site nearby our house. We went in and we we saved the bees from getting thrown into a trash bag, and we so we boxed the bees up, and then we got about. Five gallons of honey out of the deal, so that was pretty good. Alright, hope y'all have a blessed day. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye.
2: Danny from the Dish Pits. And Danny, that was an amazing voicemail, one of the best voicemails we've ever received. And, you know, that's really the way that a lot of people are walking around in our world today. They have these really deep wounds and they need people to hold the space for them so they can begin that healing process. And sometimes that involves crying in public and grieving. And so if anyone out there is playing the Stephen Jenkinson episode and someone around them is crying, you just got to go up and give them a big hug and tell them it's okay. You heal because we're carrying a lot of wounds because of our civilization.
0: That episode has been one of our our most widely listened to episodes yet. And I think that it it's just really hit a chord and, and has resonated with our listeners and it's very exciting for me to to see that people can open their their hearts and their and their minds to such little talked about ideas. It's it's very it's a great thing. Thank you so much to Danny out there. Really great message and it was wonderful to hear from you from the dish pits man. It was big big props to you.
2: Yeah and so so, Danny, thanks for holding down the fort on the front lines of climate change and peak oil there in New Orleans. And like Stephen Jenkinson was saying, sometimes it can be a challenge to remain sane in an insane culture, but you're one of the guys who's helping to make it happen. And maybe your co-workers are overhearing the extra environmentalists sometimes too, and it's helping them. That's
0: right. And if you too want to spread the extra environmentalist to all your friends, we have an amazingly free archive of episodes that you can take, download, mix, put some music, dance to, whatever that you feel like doing, head over to extraenvironmentalist.com where all these episodes are freely available for you and for your friends. Uh, if you want to put these episodes on their Facebook page, on their website, in their email box, if you want to contact the Extra Environmentalist, head over to our Facebook page where you can send us an email, you can write to us, you can join the conversation that so many of us that so many people are already having and that so many people are, are enjoying and you can see all the things that we talk about on that Facebook page as well as
2: our Twitter site where you can find all sorts of updates that are going out. Yeah, and that Twitter handle is at XEnvironmental, and you can catch our Twitter updates on there. And if you want to leave a voicemail for us like Danny did, you can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one xtra That's plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. Or if you are outside of the U.S. and Canada and you want to use Skype, you can give us a call at The Extra Environmentalist or just go to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and click on the Skype button on the right-hand side of the page. Give us a call that way or send us a sound using our SoundCloud Dropbox. On our site at www.extraenvironmentalist.com, you can also find a link to email us. And we've been getting so many amazing emails lately. It's just been incredible to hear from people all around the world. And we got a really great email from Anja recently talking about the recent episode with Simon Black and with Robert Newworth uh, questioning, you know, why would we have people on talking about informal economics? And some of the shows we do are going to be about this ideal world that we want to create and develop and see as this old system fails but other shows are going to be about uh, adaptations that may not be so ideal that we have to face and also mindsets that other people have that we may not necessarily agree with when confronting some of this information and so Robert Newirth was talking about these informal economies and Anja brought up the point that you know these things are a neoliberal dream in the way that they can you know foster poverty and concentrate wealth with people and Anja mentioned like seeing people in BMWs driving through the because they, you know, uh, got rich and had this rags to riches story, like we talked about with Robert Newworth, and that um, Anja felt that Robert really dodged the question about, you know, neoliberalism. I think perhaps we did paint too rosy of a picture about informal economies. But one of the things that is reassuring is that as governments fail, there are examples of people all around the world who still find ways to manage commerce. However, we didn't really cover the environmental piece at all. And we didn't talk about social equity. And I think that some of our upcoming interviews are definitely going to get to the heart of some of the ways we could redesign economies that don't follow into this neoliberal dream of just everybody living in slums. However, I think that in the developed world, Manfred max Neef on episode number 20 said that we live in the overdeveloped world. And a lot of our economies are going to start resembling that of the developing world here in the near future, like Greece is a great example where over five years, they were a developed world economy. And now they're really a developing world economy equivalent to that of, say, Kenya. And, you know, Spain has a higher unemployment rate than that of Kenya now. And that's a really solid example of how the developed world is undeveloping and so even though we may not want to have to live in this world full of informal markets, um, at least it's reassuring to know that people can get by and can live there even though it's not really getting at this deeper question of who we are as a species or this more ideal system that that more directly addresses the ecological problems as well. So thanks Dadja for writing in and for giving us such a detailed message and we love to hear from all of you even if it takes a little bit of time for us to respond
0: that's right Justin and you know system D markets are not necessarily very rosy places there are a lot of people who live on the bottom of these systems and you know regularly get exploited and it's not always a very fun place to live we heard from Ren out in Oregon who wrote into the show she said that she's been a long time listener listens to our show while she's running she borrows her husband's iPod while she goes outside She's in the process of moving to Tucson, Arizona, where she's going to be setting up her her garden to grow things in the desert, and it's going to be extremely exciting there. Uh, She wants to point out that we don't talk to too many women on the show, and that's something that we, we here at the Extra Environmentalists take very seriously, and we're going to be thinking about more in the future. So thanks for pointing that out, Ren. Uh, she also wants to say that it's we. she would like to hear some more things about schooling going on and we actually have some great stuff lined up on that vein and you should listen to it and it's going to be great and so just stay tuned and you'll be hearing all that interesting schooling stuff coming down the pipe soon so thank
2: you so much for your letter Ren and yeah and thanks to Ren and everybody else who's been sending us so many great emails and Facebook messages and communications recently we really sincerely appreciate you taking the time to let us into your ears wherever you're doing it whether you're running riding your bike or gardening or on a tractor like quasi-periodic or you're down in the dish pits down in the dish pits like danny heck yeah so happy halloween everybody from
0: us at the extra environmentalist and just remember that twilight movie it's really just about capitalism
9: zombie apocalypse I'd rather fight a shark I read in a book That you can punch them in the eye But sharks are my problem Yeah, and zombies are I've never seen so many girls outside Without their clothes on. Normally I think that's awesome But it's actually a turn off Cause I'm not into necropia that's a fact. Zombies moving slow. I feel like Jackie joined a curse. like the popular kid in school. And everybody wants a piece of me, but they can't. Cause I like my pieces intact. by myself The food's running low There's dust on the shelf But at least I have the voices arguing in my head Which is much better than being
3: undead Now you know a lot about being a monster, but I would like to tell you something about monsters that possibly you did not know Monsters have feelings mm-hmm. Just like you, and so you should be very kind and gentle and patient with a monster. It is not easy to be a monster. Like, oh, Harry breaks everything, but he cannot help it. And Cookie eats everything, but he cannot help it. And of course, I am cute and lovable, and I cannot help it. So, if you see a monster in your neighborhood, speak to him softly, pat his furry little head, and
6: always remember
0: the golden
6: rule.
2: On the next Extra Environmentalist, we speak with Peter Victor and Dave Gardner on managing without growth.
5: It's definitely possible to have an economy that, broadly speaking, does not expand the production and consumption of goods and services on an annual basis. And once you've reached the level of consumption that economists like Canada, the U.S., the West European economies have reached, it's not consumption that's the issue. The issue is distribution because some people get a huge share of what's produced and others get a tiny share. It's a problem that the main way you have of getting a share at all is either having wealth so that people pay you a return on your wealth or having a job so that you get a wage. Those are the two main sources of income, which then allow you to go shopping. The problem we've got is that as our capital and our labor become more efficient, the only way they can stay fully employed is if the economy grows. So one of the things we have to do is find other ways of distributing the output of a non-growing economy so that we break that tie between employment, productivity and growth. I'm sure that can be done.
10: Once a year, the secret haunted house in the Federal Reserve is open and you lucky children get to see the monsters behind the monetary system. (laughs) So children, before you may enter the Federal Reserve's haunted house, the ghost of Steve Jobs will show you how to bob for Apple products.
0: Be putting our faces into this bucket full of iPhones and iPads. So stick your face into this bucket full of iPhones and iPads, children just like the kids do in the Foxconn factory in China. That's my iPad. No,
10: that's mine. No, get it back. Now, children, that you've learned to be good consumers, you can enter the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> now, children. Over on your left, you'll see the Hall of Mirrors. And as we enter, you'll see that quantitative easing goes on and on forever! Children, be careful not to stare too closely into the mirrors, or they will lead you to introspection as to why you even participate in the system. Ah, beware on the right. It's a banshee. Oh, wait, no, that's just Nancy Pelosi and Michelle Bachman. They're crazy. Ah, we just narrowly missed their shrieks, children. But look out! It's meat, zombie!
6: Brains! Brains! Brains to use as private equity.
10: Ah, get back, children. If he grabs you, he'll sell your organs for profit on the free market.
9: Brains, kidneys,
10: liver. Ah, now children, we're in the science lab where our evil scientist Mortimer is cooking up terrible science experiments to get people to faint more. Mortimer, what are you working on? <laughs>
1: As a mad scientist at an elite institution, I used to have such a good life. It's been so hard. All of my peer-reviewed evil science experiments were making so much money. But with austerity and government cuts to research, I no longer have any money and I'm just a sad scientist.
10: Ah, Mortimer, you're so pessimistic sometimes. Why don't you cheer up? Go torture some
1: hamsters. (laughs) I put the hamsters on a wheel, and it just kept going around and around, and it reminded me of the rat race that I'm on.
10: (laughs) Ah, Mortimer, you just need to cheer up somehow. Here, drink some of this green potion. You'll be a lot happier. Ah, Mortimer, you'll be okay. Ah, turn your head, children. Only adults are allowed to see acid-damaged bodies. There. Okay, children. Now we're in Ben Bernankenstein's lab, where he's trying to bring the economy to life. Let's see if he can
1: succeed. It's alive! It's alive!
10: Oh, Bernankenstein. You should have used all the money you printed to pay for electricity infrastructure. You will never be able to reanimate the economy and your monster with no electricity and rolling blackouts, Blue. All right, let's move to somewhere with a lot more flashy lighting. Now, you children, you'll see the horrors of our main three media room. Ah, look out, it's werewolf sir. Children, quick! Shoot him with the golden bullets we fashioned out of all the gold bullion we've confiscated. Bleh. Werewolf Blitzer is a nasty creature.
6: Take that, Werewolf Blitzer! Your situation
10: will hold attention now. Ah, good job, children. You just dropped him faster than seeing in the rain. It's sad because it's on 24 hours a day. Alright, children, now, our tour is coming to an end. I'm sure that's very sad for you because no doubt your interest in it has compounded over the time you've been here. But there's one last secret. You see, children, everyone thinks the Federal Reserve prints money out of thin air. And that we do, yes. But what runs the printing presses, you ask? Well... It's children's blood. So I need you to go see Jamie Diamond, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, because he knows exactly how to fuel our printing presses. Now, children, go do your duty and make America great again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks for joining us once again from Tales from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, happy Halloween everybody. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>